Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live, and it is my honor tonight to have special guest Steve Coulter join us. Steve, thank you for being here with us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. And I got to tell you, Steve, with every guest, you know, I develop a game plan the day of the interview, you know, (laughs) how I'm going to start it. And then every interview sort of takes a life of its own after that. And I got to be honest with you, uh, as I do with every guest, I refresh looking at your resume at IMDb. And I was saying to myself, where the hell do I start with Steve? You have been in so many blockbuster franchises. I mean, (laughs) billions upon billions of dollars made at the box office. So my first question to you is, uh, in your career right now, looking back, do you look at everything you've done and do you look at it with a feeling of accomplishment and being proud or is it the feeling of missed opportunities because i don't see any missed opportunities yeah it's weird it's it's kind of odd it's it's funny how quickly time goes by because i remember very it almost feels like yesterday and it was more like 30 years ago where i remember thinking I have no credits, <laughs> you know, it's like, and it's catch 22. It's like, how do I get credits? Why doing something? And, you know, and cause starting out as an actor, I went, I went straight from acting school to New York city and I was there for about eight, nine years. And uh, I could not get arrested. I did everything. I was a bouncer at a folk club at folk city. I was, I drove uh, limos. I was a messenger at the World Trade Center. I was a dishwasher. I was a busboy. I was a terrible waiter for one night. Uh, I, uh, good Lord, I did, I did just about everything. I was, I was a carpenter. I did renovations in the Lower East Side for a long time. And then slowly, you know, do a bunch of plays and you get, I think I did uh, my first TV thing. It was kind of like 91 or something. And it slowly just builds and it kind of creeps up on you. And I think, so to answer your question, part of it, I don't feel missed opportunities, but I feel it's um, it surprises me. It's like, well, how did that how did that happen? Yeah, so I've been pretty lucky, and you know, I make a living doing what I love, which is I'm so grateful for. And often you're doing it going, you know, I, I've told people this before, but when my daughter, who's also an actor living in New York, she uh, she was about eight or so, and she goes, "Daddy, you just play dress up." And I was like, yeah, I, I kind of, at times it feels like that because you're dressed up. You know, when you're 11 years old, you're playing, or I was eight, whatever more, you're playing war and time tunnel and all these different things and G.I. Joe's and Army. And uh, and I kind of am still doing that. <laughs> and part of, sometimes you always, and you meet this, like even stars I work with, they kind of feel like someone's going to find out what we really do. And not let us do this anymore because yeah. it's not. You feel like I'm sure you feel like because like yeah. you know if you're not if you don't have yeah. a boss, you kind of feel like you're getting away with something. Exactly, and, and it, there's even a name for it. It's called the imposter syndrome. And, yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, I dealt with it for a long time. And I'm still trying to say, you know what? I belong here. I, I can do yeah, this. Yeah, it's a funny thing. And the most, you know, Dustin Hoffman talked about it. Apparently, he and Gene Hackman, they did a movie together. Uh, I think it was a John Grisham movie years ago, like 20 years ago. And they were both talking to each other, like, in the restroom or something after a scene. And they said they still feel like 
this is the movie where they're going to find out I don't have any idea what I'm doing. So if they could feel it at that level, it's like, okay, yeah, I guess it's yeah. a pretty normal. Thing it is. It is pretty normal. Now, you went to New York, okay? Yeah. Uh, I'm from New York City. So yeah, New York. Green. Yeah, exactly. New York is a place that will swallow you up if you don't, yeah. if you let it. Uh, as opposed to other actors who go to L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you look back and say going to New York was absolutely the right decision for you? Yeah, it was really, really hard. Like, I think if I'd gone to L.A., I just would have disappeared. I wasn't Because I was thinking mainly of doing some theater first. Um, I don't think I even considered going to L.A. I didn't know anybody there. Um, I was only 21, but when I moved to New York, it was 1981, which is, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, there's an Oscar Isaac movie called The Most Dangerous Year. No. And it was about 1981 in New York City. <laughs> I think it had the highest murder rate. It was back during the crack epidemic. Oh yeah, It was a pretty lousy, you know, it was before I guess Giuliani cleaned it up and all that. And that's that's when New York changed. Uh, I was seven years old in 81. Oh, wow. Yeah, when Giuliani came in, that's when everything really started yeah. to change. Yeah, it was not a pleasant place. It was really, I mean, I got mugged. I lived there for, you know, from 81 to 89, and I got mugged what, three different times in three completely different ways. Once with a knife, once with a gun, and once with a zip gun, which I hadn't heard of zip guns since like the 50s. And when the guy, if I lived up in Harlem and he followed me, I guess, you know, you get, you know, New York, you're in your head. I got mm-hmm. home. I didn't hear a guy. I think I, I think it was back in the days of Walkmans, you know, so I had a Walkman in. I was listening to music and this guy had followed me up and he stuck his foot in my door as I got in. And I had like one of those long days. I'd been on the subway and I turned around. And I looked at this thing he was holding and I was like, that doesn't look like it could hurt me. But then I remember, wait, zip guns use 22 caliber shells. Mm-hmm. 22s can do enough little damage. And I was so pissed off. He said, give me your money. And I had like 60 bucks in my pocket. I was like, I don't have anything. And then my buddy who shared the part with he goes, I got some money. <laughs> but yeah, that was just the part of the deal. And so, yeah, I, I'm glad I went there because I learned, uh, it was tough. It was really tough. So I learned kind of a humility. I paid my dues, you know, mm-hmm. several times. And um, yes, yeah, so I'm glad I went there. I would learned. You, I got, uh, would you say, now you got your start in theater. Is that accurate? But anyway, that's what I was trained to do. It was kind of odd because the theater program was kind of like a Juilliard kind of program mm-hmm. in the same, like they call it the League of Professional Theater Training Program. Really odd. Like the graduate, there are only 12 of us in the class. And they trained you in, you know, dialects and singing and stage combat and Shakespeare and modern plays and, you know, pretty much everything. Um, so they're training you to do theater, but theater was not, and I did a lot of regional theater where I'd go out in the country and do a play in Minneapolis and Ohio and stuff like that. But I really, I mean, I grew up, you know, watching Pacino and De Niro and those guys. And I knew I wanted to do film and TV stuff. It was just a matter of time. You know, when I was in New York, I would do student films like at NYU and Columbia. It was really kind of cool. We'd go way up to Fort Tryon Park and the cloisters and shoot at like five in the morning in yeah. February. And, it was a lot of fun, and you made some really cool people. So what would you say, looking back now, was your biggest break into the motion picture industry, whether it's television or film? Yeah, it was probably, and it was funny, it might have been James Wan with that first 
Conjuring. It was because uh, I did it. I just had one scene in it. It was I'd already was living in Atlanta, and that was back before Atlanta was this incredible oh, yeah. film and TV center. Back then, you had to go out of state, so they were shooting uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina. I went and did the scene. It went, you know, it went well. It wasn't like oh wow. Um, James said thank you, and then it was about a year later where I got I think I got an email from him saying he wanted me to do this role in uh, Insidious Two. And I was like, okay. And that, that, and I've now done about, God, I think about six or seven things that he either directed or produced. He's very loyal. And I think that, and then Walking Dead helped it a lot because mm -hmm. overnight, you know, it was crazy. I didn't realize that, even though I'd watched The Walking Dead since its first episode, and I knew it had a big fan base, but I didn't realize, you know, I think I had a, I had Twitter account. I might have had like 70 followers or something. And then after Walking Dead came on, it was like went up to like tens of thousands. It was really weird. So let's, that helped. So slowly, it was really kind of a slow, slowly, and you find yourself working more and more. And then you find your auditioning less. You're like just getting a job. And you still have to audition now and then, uh, quite often. But yeah, so this, all of a sudden I realized I was making a living doing it. I was like, well, this is. That's this sweet. is better than being a bouncer at a full club. <laughs> so let's talk about The Walking Dead. Reg, uh, you were on The Walking Dead at its absolute peak, uh, season five. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. we're talking about 15 million, 20 million viewers per week. It's insane. Yeah. Uh, so uh, when you auditioned for the role of Reg, opposite of Tova, Deanna's yeah. husband, uh had you you said you watched the show from oh, the yeah. very beginning Big so fan. you knew what you were getting into and the scope yeah yeah and i had an audition for the only time only other time i auditioned was for the role of um oh my god the scott wilson played herschel and i'm really glad i didn't get that because he was so phenomenal yeah. and and the way it is as you may have heard you get uh pretend audition yeah sides you know, yeah sides. And what they gave it for me was like I was a uh, it was a party for a famous author at a New York penthouse. And uh, I was like the host of the party. And I had this long talk with this guy who when you looked at it, it ended up being the scene. It was one of my first scenes, actually, my first scene that I shot, which was when, you know, uh, Tofa's character and my Reg and uh, Deanna welcome, you know, Rick and his gang. So it really was kind of a little party. Um, and, uh, but I didn't think, you know, you don't know if you have much chance. And then they said they they wanted me, but they just had to see if I would they'd, uh, match me up with Tova because she'd already been cast. And then uh, and then I just waited a few days. And then I think I found out it was on my birthday I got the call, you know, whatever, 2015, 16. Um, yeah, that I got it. And I was, it was like, yeah, it's like being, a, it's like not quite the same, but it was like being a fan of a, you know, being a Met fan and getting to play with the team. Because you're, you know, you walk in there, and in your head, the professional part of you is like, you know, you know your lines, you're acting, but inside you're like a little kid going, "That's that's Rick, that's Michelle, you know, that's like, you know, that's Derek Jeter." And so it was, and they were so nice. It's really odd, and you may have heard this too. And it's, it's, you know, sometimes you, I've been on like guest start on a on a hit show. And the actors all key to themselves. They're like a, it's like being the new kid at a, in ninth grade or something, and no one talks to you. But these guys knew that you'd be nervous coming in. And so, you know, uh, they just, especially Andrew Lincoln, he was yeah. one of the first people to greet me. 
and like just welcome to the family. You know, there was none of this. You know, they were so so nice. Andrew did that with every newcomer. That yeah, he was like the. I mean, it really is. You leave from the top, and he sets such an example. He, no one worked harder than him. No one was nicer. He didn't take himself seriously. He took the work really seriously. You know, shooting every day, and uh, and he would give like you know if, if the coverage camera was on you. He would give just as much as he did uh, when the camera was on him. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I've heard ridiculous. amazing stories about Andrew, and uh, yeah, you never hear anything. He's no. just—he's a great guy. He's yeah. just really, really great. Guy. No, yeah, no one has. I mean, he sounds like an amazing person. Now, you got the role of Reg. Mm-hmm. Who was it? Uh, was it Greg Nicotero? Was it Gail Ann Hurd? Who actually approached you once you've been booked for the role to explain to you, if they did explain to you, how long your arc would be on the show? They, they didn't. I I first heard, I mean, they sort of told me what was going on. I think it was Scott Gimble, the head writer um, and the showrunner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had heard, but it may have been through my agent or something that, because uh, it was towards, it was like the last four or five episodes of the fifth season, so I thought I was going into the next season. Now, if I had, I did read a little bit of the comics to kind of get an idea of, you know, the source material and stuff. And if I'd read it closely, no, actually I did. And it didn't occur to me because in the comics, my character is reversed. Like there's a Senator who's a, a woman and the man, the engineer architect is the wife, which mm-hmm. I think her name is, uh, I don't know, Regina. And she tries to break up a fight between Rick and, and what's his name, Porchstick. Peter. And then she's killed. But it didn't occur to me that, oh, that might happen to me. Yeah. didn't even, until like I was, I think I'd been, uh, maybe it'd been, it was right a month before we shot the finale episode and Scott Gimple, I heard he wanted to talk to me. And I thought it was about what you were saying, about the arc of where my character's going, you know. But then I got a second message because I, uh, the same day saying, he wants to talk to you about the finale episode. And yeah. that's when I went, Oh man, I'm gonna die. <laughs> it seems like uh, when Scott was the showrunner, if you got an email or a call from Scott, you were dying. <laughs> and then he finally got, we played phone tag for like two days, and I guess it was a Saturday, and I picked up the phone, and it was Scott, and I went, I'm gonna die, right? And he goes, Yeah, yeah, but it's gonna be really cool, I promise. It's really, really cool. <laughs> Reg's death, uh, it, it was cool. I mean, you, I mean, yeah. it, it was amazing. You had a great death on the show. Yeah, they did a good job. And they, uh, back in the days, you know, when The Walking Dead was really not afraid to kill off major characters, they become yeah. a little bit more conservative now. But your death, that finale, first of all, who directed that? Was it Satrazimus or Nicotero? That was Nicotero. That was the only one because of the one that I did. I think that was the only one that he directed. And um, yeah, yeah. Did you have the uh, pleasure of working with uh, Satrazimus behind the yes, camera? Yes, he did the one. Oh, which one did he do? There's one where I, I have a lot of stuff with Maggie. Um, and he was he was so great. It was one when my son dies. Yeah. And we were shooting a whole, you know, they work very, very fast because, you know, you're basically making half a movie in a little over like 10 days. Yeah. And there's a scene where I'm just sitting in the living room, just kind of thinking and mulling it over. And he came over and he made sure he said, Steve, I know we're in a big hurry today. You take as much time as you need. We're not, you're not rushed, you whatever. And that's, you know, 
right down the line. That's how everybody was there. There's like, we, we want to make it good and we're not going to rush you. And, and yeah, he was great. He was great. That was a classic episode in many ways. It was the episode where you died. It was when Morgan and Rick met yeah, up again. Yeah, a lot of stuff and happened. It all happened in like the last two minutes of the, <laughs> of the episode. People thought, oh, it's winding down. And then it was like, wham, bam, two people are dead. Oh, here's that character for, we haven't seen in a season. Yeah. So you were part yeah. of the group when Andrew was giving his speech on yeah. how he was telling people, I was trying to figure out how many of you I have to kill in order to save you. I mean, some real powerful dialogue. What was it like filming, being in that atmosphere and having Andrew go, I mean, bring it 120%. Yeah, it's a, that's, it was one of those examples of what I told you. We shot that almost, it took like from 11 in the morning to probably five in the afternoon. And they had to shoot, you know, sometimes if you have a scene with one or two people, they shoot, you know, a wide shot, then they shoot you and then they shoot the other people. But this was... 360 we had, he had basically all of us around him mm-hmm. and not only that they also had to do the fight between him and pete and that was an example of he's like he's almost crazy he's just really angry and imploring and it's a long talk and he did it at the same level every single time from the very first take sometimes actors will start in and then they get rolling and bam but now he started like that and it's you're just kind of watching like so everyone is doing their very best, too. It raises the game kind of thing. Uh, two of the saddest deaths, I think Noah died in Ugh. the following season, was yours and Noah. Noah, in my opinion, suffered the most gruesome death to date. Yeah, and he, see, this is not, he, di- he died like an episode or two before me because we had had that scene where I, caught, I sort of, you know, my two sons are kind of screw-ups. But we had that scene in the gazebo where we kind of connect. Yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, ah, if anyone talks about having hope or a future, they're dead on this show. <laughs> and later, now when I read that script, I was like, oh, this is great. It's the beginning of a friendship. And then later in that episode, he gets caught in the revolving doors. Now, I had Michael Trainer on this show. Oh, he's great. He's amazing. He's and I brought it up to him. I'm like... You know, you are kind of respond. Your character is kind of responsible for Noah's oh, death, yeah. and he spun it. He's like, oh, "Oh, I'm sorry, but I have to disagree with you. If you remember, Noah told Glenn not to let go. So That's hashtag true. Glenn let go. <laughs> he did let go. <laughs> he was yeah, great. Michael's, Michael's great, an yeah. amazing person. He was He's so fun really to great. talk to. So you get the script and you see. Your character is coming to an end. Uh, what were your feelings? It's really your. It's mixed feelings because it's sort of like. It's, again, I keep going back to baseball metaphors. It's almost like, well, we're going to trade you, but your last day, you're going to get to hit a grand slam home run, and so you're going to get to go off with a bang. And so, as an actor, it was exciting because there was a lot of fun stuff to get to do. Um, and again, just that little kid part of you was like, oh, I get to shoot blood out my neck. <laughs> um, but then it's sad because it's it's a great job with great people. So it, and it became a, it's so odd. I was there, you know, really only like three, four months, but you really get a part of something. And because, you know, when you work on movies, you work together for a few weeks or maybe two months and then it's done with well, a series. It can go on and on. So that it was a mixed feeling. I was sad to be leaving. But if I was going to go out, 
I couldn't have picked the you know yeah. last scene of a finale episode. Um, so it was yeah, it was it was it was kind of great because um, I have I've had friends who were on the show, and one friend of mine was on it for like five years, but he would get like a scene every six episodes mm-hmm. or so. So it was kind of it was kind of a mixed blessing for him because he liked being on the show, but he didn't get to do much, and I got to do a lot and just a little. Yep. So it kind of it was kind of nice in a sense, um, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Now let's talk about uh, working with Tova. You know, a phenomenal yeah. actress, uh, Deanna on the show. I have spoken to insiders at The Walking Dead, and you know, we all know this. I mean, the people. I mean, not everybody knows it, but every death on The Walking Dead is for a purpose. It's to propel another character. Yeah. Reg's death was to propel Deanna, okay, and open her eyes and take her to the next level. Is that how you saw it as well? Uh, Exactly. It was like, because she was was sitting on that fence and they needed story-wise to shove her off. Mm -hmm. I'm like, hey, wake the hell up. It was a hell of a way to do it. <laughs> but um, yeah, that was just, and it's true. And like any good script, it's got to be, you want your characters to take big actions and big stuff. You don't want to just have people sitting around talking about yeah. those because you got to get people, that's any story, a play, you know, TV, movie, whatever. And they're really good at that. I'm just constantly, especially back then. I mean, every single episode, something. It just was always moving it forward, moving it forward. And you didn't know, like you said, you didn't know what was going to happen because mm-hmm. no one was safe. No one was safe. Uh, now, was, when, yeah. when you were introduced, it's also when we got introduced to Alexandria. Yeah. And yeah. Alexandria, that's not, and there's no part of it that's CGI. It's an actual no, set. It's an actual neighborhood. And those those walls are made out of steel. It goes all the way around, and it's a. It was a housing development. I don't know if you know, I don't know what deal they worked out, but it would be kind of funny because we'd be shooting like seven o'clock at night, and they'd have to hold because a FedEx truck would be coming through to deliver a package. And it was so odd. You have all these people standing around, dirty with guns and stuff, and here comes FedEx, and we're like. Now, having been on so many big budget films and you're coming in and you're seeing this big set that they did, Alexandria that they built, were you impressed? Oh, yeah. It's just, it, that's one of the another fun things is it's like a great big, you know, it, it stuns me some of the sets that I've been in. Like, I just did this, uh, I can't say what it is yet, I'm not allowed, but it was a Marvel series that we shot all summer. And they basically built an entire built, like a, two or three story building inside a sound stage and and it's and or i did uh when i worked on first man when they built you know the exact replicas of the apollo module and the gemini module and you know and they have the resources to do that and the same thing with with alexandria is like everything you don't have to pretend you know it's 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 not green screen you're you know so one thing that was nice a lot of people that worked on the walking dead had to work out in the woods and that and i got to work you know, from like September to November or August to November, which is the nicest time in Georgia. It's like one long autumn. And I was working in, you know, we would take breaks and just sit on the steps. It was like sitting outside of Brownstone in Brooklyn or something. We would just hang out and sit on the steps until it was time for the next setup and uh, stay clean and cool and warm. <laughs> I got kind of spoiled. I didn't have to, I wasn't out in the woods with the ticks. Yeah, everybody you talk to, it's all about the devastating Georgia heat in Atlanta when I, they were I, shooting. I was, I was fine. <laughs> 
So let's talk about uh, character preparation. I'm sure yeah. you have your own unique style of getting into uh, your character that you're going to portray. Reg, Indiana, the entire Alexandria community before Rick and company came along, they were sort of sheltered behind those walls. Uh, you were the architect. You built the, your character, built those walls to keep yeah. everybody safe. So how did you... Get into character to play Reg. Did you sort of say to yourself, you know what? The zombie apocalypse did not happen. That's not how I'm going to play this. I'm going to pretend that this is a normal world, and mm. that's how I'm going to present Reg to that's the audience. That's what you do. You do. Yeah, that's a almost <clears throat> summed it up because what you do is even people under extreme circumstances. You know, I've, I've read so much about World War II and the Holocaust and the Civil War. People in extraordinarily horrific circumstances they're not sitting there every day going i'm in the middle of the river you're you still gotta eat you still gotta i mean sometimes it's scrounging for food and stuff and so but what it was is underneath it all it's kind of like it was almost like there's during a war because you know there's a tension underneath it all and what you do you just sort of figure you, you borrow stuff from your own life you think of stuff that were the things that are big worries about yours you try to tap into that so there's always a bit of attention. There's not an ease all the time. It's not like, because otherwise it's like, it's not going to make sense, especially to that audience, because they know the story. But it's still, you try to look for the normal, mm -hmm. you know, and then you get help. You get, you know, they had a really nice townhouse where they lived. The clothes you get to wear, it makes, you know, he wore really nice stuff. So it, you carry yourself. So there's a lot of stuff you don't, you try to like soak in things and, absorb as much of the stuff that's right in front of you that you don't have to make up in your head. And then you do stuff like, and I did some architecture, a bunch of architecture research, just so I had it. Oh, you're never going to hear me talk about it, but it made me see how he thinks he has a big picture kind of brain. And also his, it was, this was kind of fun. You know, that kind of a character, he's so positive and he's so trusting and so optimistic. So you get to tap into, because I am not, you know, I'm not a down person, but I was not as optimistic as he was. Mm -hmm. And it kind of rubs off on you because you start looking around like, well, what's working? This is working. That's pretty great. You know, he wasn't agonizing over anything. And I did, and you also see what's your role in the script. It's like he's a clear voice of authority and kindness. And so, you know, that's, that's a big thing is you don't look for, you look where, where you fit into the story because you can do all sorts of clever actor choices, but that's like, if it doesn't help the story, you know, it's like, oh, I'm not going to give him a limp because that's going to distract him. It's like, why would exactly. I do that? But there are actors that kind of do that where it's like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, it's so fun. Like when a friend of mine will say, oh, you got to see this movie. The acting's great. It's the same thing of saying, oh, you got to go see the new Marvel movie, the special effects. It's like, you want to see a great story, you know, and if the effects are great or if the actors are good, that's always the set. You know, like I've been watching Succession on yeah. HBO. Now, mind you, the acting is incredible, but what it is is that story just, you care about all those people and you can't wait to find out what the hell's going to happen. So that's your job. You know, I feel my job is to figure out where do I fit into telling this story, you know, and not distract from it and, and also have fun with it. You now, know, a lot of actors, when their time comes to an end on television with a character in particular, they, uh, in order to prepare for the next job, the next role, 
they want a, a clean break and they don't continue to watching that show if they were watching it in the first place. Yeah. You being a fan of the series, oh, yeah. being a part of it, when your time was up, did you do a clean break from The Walking no, Dead? Not or? at all. I kept watching that damn thing because it was like, you know, part of me was like, I'd developed some friends, but the bigger part was I wanted to see what was going to happen to Rick. And, you know, <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, um, it was that fan of me that kept watching. I didn't care. And it wasn't at all like, you know, Oh, I don't get to do it. I, was like, I didn't care. I was like, this is a really, it was just a great, it was like a great book that I had to open back up again. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, yeah, I've never had to do a clean break. It's, it's, it's odd. Sometimes you'll play, it's more often in theater because in theater you're doing something eight, you know, eight days, eight times a week and stuff. And when the characters, you know, when the play's over, it's done, it's gone. It does it's, you can't rent it <laughs> or stream it. It's, and that's a little sad because you really do say goodbye to this, life you've kind of created along with the writer and stuff so that's a little harder movies sometimes it's hard to say goodbye because it's fun it's kind of corny but it's like it's fun being other people especially if they're kind of cool yeah. if they're cooler than you you know i've gotten to play characters that are smarter than me and i once played God, one time i played this a male prostitute like a new york gay prostitute this is like God, almost 40 years ago but he was such a great guy like when I was in his head, he was just like the way he saw the world. He was so, so interesting. And I liked his view on the world. And so you kind of miss that, you know, it's kind of, you create this whole world or um, so that it's a weird thing you get. Your brain doesn't know the difference of the, it's not like you're walking around like I am this guy, but there's a part of you that just, you know, you start, you think thoughts that you normally wouldn't think because mm -hmm. you're thinking the writers created and your imagination mixes with it and it feels real and like i was i played this the thing i can't talk about i played this incredibly powerful very wealthy guy and that was fun like i had this they built me this office that was the size of god it was like a small airplane hanger and you just sit at that desk and someone walks in on the other side of the room and you don't have to do anything you're wearing a two thousand dollar suit and they're walking in and, and you just and you get to be that powerful and it's kind of fun. It it's just, it's just the pretend of it is, uh, you know, it's like I said, it doesn't feel like a job for a grown up, but that pretend is very fun. Now, just one final question on The Walking Dead before we move on. They are in the process now uh, of prepping for the, the spin off tales of The Walking yeah. Dead, the anthology, the episodic anthology spin off. Would you be open? to reviving the role of Reg in an episode? Yeah, yeah. I, hadn't even, I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, yeah, because you never get to revisit characters, and that would be that would be really interesting. There's yeah. a story yeah. to tell there. There's a big, I mean, for me personally, I would love to find out how, when the outbreak happened, yeah. how did Reg and Deanna, how did those walls go up? so yeah, quickly i mean what did yeah. reg and deanna reg in particular know that prompted him to put up those walls yeah uh, so there's a lot of story to tell there and personally i would love to see it uh so now moving on like you 
let's talk about the Conjuring universe, okay? But you have to promise we get to talk about the 86 Oh, mats. we're going to. Uh, I'm saving <laughs> that. What, we're going to talk about more, the match. I'm more excited about that instead of talking about me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about the match. Trust <laughs> me. I've been looking forward to that, but I'm saving that for last. Oh, good. Okay. So, The Conjuring. Uh, yeah. Huge franchise. You already That's explained... Crazy. Uh, James Wan and how he likes to stick, which a lot of directors and filmmakers yeah. do, with their actors. They like working with them. Obviously, you're a, a big James Wan favorite to work with. Uh, coming in, and you and Patrick Wilson, he's yeah. also in the Insidious franchise. Yeah, we get well. confused sometimes because we forget we were talking about something and we realized we're talking about the wrong movie. <laughs> it's like, oh, whatever. Have you and Patrick become friends? Yeah, it's we have because he and I and Vera like we don't we don't see each other in between, but as soon as we get back together, it's like a band getting back together because everyone, especially those two, uh, they joke a lot, and I think it's because you know they're total pros, but the subject matter is so tense and so serious. If everyone stayed at that level of intensity, I think it would not be good for anyone's performances. And Patrick, particularly, we give each other a lot of grief. Like, I always, it seems like every movie, I get some damn prayer I have to say that's either in Latin. And, like, I'm really good at learning lines. Like, I did a one-man show where I had to talk for an hour and a half for myself. But these lines always are like, they will not stick in my head. And, and like, I'll, one in the last one in Conjuring 3, I said this one thing, and it came out. Not gibberish, but kind of close. And he and Vera were just like looking at it because the close-ups on me, and they're just looking at me like, "Is that is that the way you're gonna say it?" That was like, so yeah. So there's a great deal of fun. Like you fall right back into it again, and it's and part of it is that one thing about James Wan is he has this energy that is so contagious because he loves making movies. I mean, he's a big fan of movies. Period. But he just loves it. He could, I think he could shoot for 20 hours a day. And that kind of, and the same thing with any directors that he has hired when he produces, the same thing. They all just love it so much. It doesn't, you know, making a movie so logistically, it's really oh, a hard thing to do. And there's so many different moving pieces. But so you need, the director really is the captain of the ship. And if they're tense, everyone's going to be tense. If they're excited, everyone's going to be excited. Um, so yeah it's and that's that's that atmosphere on that they're just very very silly in the conjuring the devil made me do it you yeah. are a part of that opening exorcism yeah. scene I that i mean talk about <laughs> intense all yeah, right very intense. the the effects the little boy the movements the atmosphere just that exorcism scene which is your predominant role in that film yeah. how long did that take to shoot that's a good question. I think it was about three or four days. Okay. Um, we were at that house for a while. And um, because we had all the stuff going down the stairs, all the stuff in the room upstairs. And then and then what's interesting about the actual, the stuff that takes place in the dining room table, mm -hmm. very little CGI. I mean, they added the scratches on the wall and stuff. But for example, when the table's doing this, it's not some hydraulic, it's these two Teamster guys. <laughs> underneath the table just going <laughs> and the i think you probably have read about it the, the the it was a woman who played the the little boy you know and they put his face on her it was a real contortionist Ooh. and so so none of that is cj either and she's doing this and we're like 
you don't have to act when you see someone turn themselves basically inside out. Um, they did a little like the CGI of the plate hitting me. That didn't have. We had a real wind machine going, like crazy wind machine. Um, and I just, you know, we we uh, did a CGI with the plate actually hitting me and stuff. I just, you know, acted it out falling down. But it's funny how much of it was just like as if you were 14 years old and making an eight millimeter movie. It's like, yeah, shake the table and here's the wind and there's the. And stuff. it sounds like you guys had a blast doing it. Yeah, it's silly. Yeah, here's when you watch it in the movie, it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. But when we did it, it was just a lot of fun. <laughs> so, Distinguishing between the Insidious franchise and The Conjuring, would you say for you as an actor in both those franchises, it's the same, uh, with, especially with that. Patrick there? Or is the atmosphere completely different on those two different Well, sites? the only thing that's different is The Conjuring movies have a bigger budget so they get a little more time okay whereas the insidious movies were done god we shot insidious 2 in like 20 something days so they're a lot longer hours and there's a little more of a sense of well, i don't know about that i was about to say it's a little more sense of almost doing an independent film but that's not true because james works the same way in the conjuring as he does um, but it was, yeah, it just, we had, we didn't have as much time. So you're having to really kind of move a lot faster. Like we would have probably shot the exorcism scene if it was in the insidious, probably in a night or two okay. versus several days. Um, uh, but that'd be about the only difference. It's still the same spirit. You know, the insidious movies have Lynn Shea and she's extraordinary. She's so funny and kind and, and, uh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to get her on the show. It's a schedule, oh, issue, she's but great. I cannot wait to talk to Lynn Shay. She's great. She's so great. She's, yeah. Now, uh, you were also in Annabelle. Did, uh, yes, yeah, we did a little visit. We visited Annabelle. Uh, so you are definitely a, a big part of the Conjuring universe. Uh, were you surprised that you were asked to come and be in Annabelle? Yeah, it's odd because it's and the way it works with these guys, you'll just get a call. <laughs> say, like we're gonna be and it's with funny with Father Gordon, he's I've always compared him to like uh, Commissioner Gordon in Batman. He's like he finds out, okay, we got this case, it's in New England or it's in London. Uh, here's your mission, good luck. And uh like the last one was the first time in the the devil made me do it where he actually, he doesn't usually go along to the exorcism. He's usually sitting back at the church reading magazines and stuff. Um, so I actually had to go out. Um, but yeah, it's always, and it's what's funny is that I, I, it's not that I don't like horror movies, but they scare the crap out of me, especially movies like those that are about evil. Yeah. Because it's different. Like I can watch like, you know, Friday the 13th, that's the slasher stuff. Yes. It's just kind of like an amusement park ride. Mm -hmm. That's fine. They don't scare me. It's more like, that's kind of fun. But these scare, like when they sent me, I think I was doing, it was Insidious 2, they were about to, you know, we were about to do press for it. So they sent me a copy that I could watch on my laptop. But I had to like open all the curtains during the middle of the day, put my laptop kind of on the other side of the room because that shit's, even though I knew, you know, I knew that we're just shooting and I know those are friends, it still scares the crap out of me. So I don't. Like I've said many times, I can enjoy a Friday the 13th slasher. It doesn't scare me, uh, terrify or movie. But the only subgenre in horror that still scares me is the paranormal subgenre yeah. because I believe in it. Uh, yeah, see, that's the thing. Yeah, you can't just go, oh, it's just a movie. No, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I've all had experiences it. where it's like, 
like we did for what was it um god was it conjuring or i think it was i think no it was insidious where we shot in the basement and of this old deserted hospital in los angeles and we're shooting at like two three o'clock in the morning and you know you're we're in like the records room and all the records of the hospital are still there which and, and it's so dark and you know that a hospital has this you know it's a place of suffering mm-hmm. I and mean, also a place of healing but you know thousands of people have gone through their cancer injuries death, shooting and there's a lot of energy over that and that was the first time where i was like I'm going to stay close to where everyone is. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I was, yeah. Cause usually it's like, you're in a studio. Like we shot, like Annabelle was all in the studio. Um, and most of the time we're in a studio stuff, but, and most of the devil made me do it except for the house stuff is in the studio. But yeah, it's, uh, that stuff scares the crap out of me. Do you think, you know, filmmakers pick locations like that hospital you were talking about, to sort of bring that primal fear out of the actors and bring it onto the I screen? Think, I think it's a bonus. I, I think that it's probably more like convenient because instead of building a set, they've got, you know, you're going to have the rooms, the hallways, the things, you, you, so you don't have to build that. But I think it's a bonus. It's like icing on the cake of like, you know, those gotcha. actors are going to have to get in character. They're already scared. So You have had the fortune of playing a wide spectrum of characters uh some actors get boxed into certain category bad guys mm-hmm. and whatnot uh are you happy and you feel you've played all the character types that you've wanted to play throughout your career so far no, almost like i am i've been very lucky that i haven't gotten like i do have to like sometimes i'll turn down a horror thing just because i've done because the ones i've done so many people have seen coincidentally. So, uh, and I've known actors that get kind of stuck in that. And, and uh, like I recently did a movie in New Orleans called we have a ghost. And I initially turned down the audition because I thought it was a horror film and it's not, it's more like, it's scary, but it's fun. It's like a family. It's got, it's very, it's like ET with a ghost. It's got David Harbor and it's going to be very fun, but it's um, yeah. I've been really lucky. The only thing I have not gotten to do is a Western. That I would, uh, and that's that eleven-year-old side of you, you know. That's just like I want to do a West. I got to do like, a, yeah. We all grew. I watched Clint Eastwood and all those Kevin Costner movies and stuff. Is I want to do a, a flat-out western, and then I'll be happy. <laughs> Out of all the numerous projects that you have done, if what would you say was the one that really left, whether it's positive or negative, yeah. but an impression on you? Well, you know, Reg probably was a big impression because not only it had everything, it had this incredible group of people, you know, that I'd heard about. And then I saw that was even nicer than I thought. It was a fun role. It was seen, you know, because sometimes you do, you know, I've done plays where a couple hundred people saw them and it was still an extraordinary experience. So that kind of had it all. Um, This thing I did for Marvel this past summer, which I'll be able to talk about in probably a year. That was, you know, because I was there from April through August, and that was amazing because it was, I thought, you know, working for them, it's a big, huge company, Disney and all that, but it was like a bunch of kids getting together to play with just really cool toys. Um, and, and part of it is, you know, it sounds odd, but the stuff that I try to, I tell younger actors this sometimes too, the stuff that sticks to your ribs is the day-to-day experiences of like you know because when a movie comes out and people go oh i saw you in that 
that feels good for a second, but it's kind of like dessert. It's like it doesn't stay with you. What stays with you is those memories of trying to work out something or just the company. I did a movie last uh, in the winter down in Dominican Republic where because the quarantine, we all had to be housed together because mm-hmm. normally actors are staying at different hotels and stuff, but we were all in this one big house. And it was like summer camp. We all ate all our meals together. We hung out together. We watched movies together, played music together. And that's what I were, you know, even if that movie probably will be, it's really, it's a good director. Even if it does really well, that'll be really cool. But what's going to stick in my head is hanging out with those people who are still my friends. And it's, uh, you know, it's like anything. I think that's the, that camaraderie and stuff and then if it happens to do really well then that's just you know kind of gravy let me ask if this is sort of uh universal since getting into the entertainment industry i haven't been able to enjoy entertainment i have no time i don't Uh, have time anymore to sit down and and binge watch a series yeah, Uh, yeah you are in and i'm totally drawing a blank you're in that really popular new series that's out right now and i'm totally drawing a blank but my question is uh when it comes to film and television do you have a preference film over tv yeah it's because of how tv has changed like i watch a lot more tv than i watch movies um because tv can do like you can take a story like you know so many it's not a 22 episode thing anymore it's like 10 episodes or 12 where you have a succession or a better call Saul um, or now when they adapt a book, they can, if it's on TV, they can do, you know, 12 episodes and do all the stuff in the book. I'm, I think TV has kind of raised the bar for movies. Cause you go, movies is a little trickier. I think it's one of the reasons it makes me a little sad because movies like dog day afternoon and stuff like that might not, or Serpico, wouldn't do as well and people wouldn't see them as much anymore they might more be on tv but the, like the production values on television are kind of astonishing sometimes oh, yeah. and and so it's you know during the pandemic where you didn't no one got to go see a movie except i still like i went to see um dune in a movie theater recently i was like that's the way to see something like that because it's the thing i like about movies that tv will never replace is just the spectacle of it. You know, you go into there and the smell of it, it sounds corny, but the smell no. of popcorn, red Twizzlers, big tall Coke. And, and when the lights start to go, you know, the previews lights start to go down and it just gives you that little, it's just kind of magical. And if you see a movie like, you know, a big opening night for a movie, like a Star Wars movie with a crowd, or you see, that's like a scary movie. The only scary movies, I'll go to the movie theater because I want to experience it with, like I went to see, I guess, what was the last Conjuring one with my daughter? Because it was fun to hear. It's like an amusement park, right? So that you know, I'll always, I'll always love movies because I just love movie theaters, and you know, that's what I grew up to. Yeah, and there is uncertainty now. The world, especially in entertainment, is changing. <laughs> Nobody really knows where it's going to end up. Um, <laughs> we just have to wait and see. So let's go to some baseball here. All right, oh, you said something okay. interesting to me. <laughs> Uh, everybody knows I'm from New York. I'm a diehard New York Mets fan. As I told you in an email earlier today, I became a fan uh, game six of the 1986 uh, World Series. And you said you had some interesting story, especially about the Mets to share. So I'd love yeah. to hear it. Well, see, because I grew up, 
I grew up about an hour outside of New York. So I grew up oddly enough, because you know, you only had like what I had you had four channels, five channels, because you had NBC, CBS, NBC, and in New York you had WPIX, yep. which is the Yankees and WOR, which is uh Channel Met. Nine and Channel Eleven. Yeah, channel nine. And I would watch, I was an equally a, a Yankee fan and a Mets fan. Like my first live baseball game, my dad took me to a Twilight doubleheader at the old Yankee Stadium, you know, back when they had doubleheaders. And I got to see Mickey Mantle. It was 1968. I got to see him in his last season. Wow. And I was right behind home plate. And as a kid, I'd only watch, you know, black and white TV. And when someone hit the ball, it'd be this. But I didn't know that when you're in the stadium, it's this crack of the bat. And so I was hooked. You know, I wanted to be a baseball player so bad. Um, but then I also was a huge Met fan because the 69 World Series and stuff. But then because of, and I went off to college and this and high school, and I moved away to Cleveland, I became an Indians fan. But I sort of, I, I had gotten away from being a baseball fan. But then in like 83, I started following the Mets again. I was living in New York. And that was back where, you know, we'd be watching the first game. Me and my buddies are like, we watched the first game of WOR and then we go, you want to go to the second game? So we just hop on the train, take the seven the and way. we'd be out and sitting down in the cheap seats. Um, and so, you know, they got really good. And then 85, they came really close and it was the Cardinals and the Cubs and all that. And so I went to God in the summer of 86, I must've gone to like 30 games. And so I was a huge fan. And that game six, I, I saw it. I was living in Harlem. And I remember when they won that night, I went out on my fire escape and you could just hear the cheering because it was such a miracle. And then you might not remember this, but the next they were split. That was like a Saturday. It rained out. Yeah, it got rained out. So, and I went, a buddy of mine had a little birthday party at his house, you know, and there's a friend of mine there named Tim Wagner, who I will always be indebted to. His wife worked for WOR and he came over to me at that. It was like Sunday afternoon, it was raining outside or something night. And he said, Hey, Steve, what are you doing tomorrow night? And I was oh. like, so I got tickets to go see game seven oh, wow. of the 86 World Series. And I was like, I'm the first. And I was I was just in heaven. And um, and we got to go down. It was kind of weird because, you know, even like I'm, a, I'm 62 now. But even now when I watch baseball games, I feel like they're older than me. Because I guess you still see it through the eyes of a kid. Yeah. And I always feel like, you know, the guy's 24. But it's like, if I met him, I'd go, oh, Mr. Hernandez. Like, I was a huge Keith Hernandez fan. Mm -hmm. I still am. Um, Dale Strawberry, Dwight Gooden, uh, Lenny, Lenny Dykstra, Dykstra Wally Backman, Ray seen, Knight. There's the ESPN uh, 30 for 30 documentary that's out now about the 86 Mets. No, I haven't seen it yet. No. You got to look it up. Find, get a couple hours. It's a little, it's like a four episode thing of that summer and fall. And it's I mean, it has a lot with Keith Hernandez and good. Oh, it's, it's that '86 World Series is uh, ranked as one of the top ten best World Series ever. Yeah. Yes, it was. It's amazing. And it's, to give you an example of where I lived, I lived on the third train stop away from Shea Stadium, heading towards Manhattan. Oh wow! The third train <laughs> stop is where my house is today too. I own my house oh, now. Wow. Yeah, oh, so man. it was amazing. And people don't realize that the Mets ruled New York in the eighties. They did. It was just they had videos out. They had that's all you talked about. That's like in the you know, back when you, know, you bought the Daily News every morning and went to the back page. Even if you'd watch the game or listen to the game, I used to listen to a lot of games on radio just because it was fun. 
even though you'd watch the whole game, you'd still read the articles and look at the box scores. And yeah, oh, they yeah. did. They ruled that they, they were the princes of the city. It was incredible. Are you still a, a Mets fan today? I'm not a Mets not, fan, a baseball fan. Yeah, I'm a bit. It's weird. I, I'm more of, I love old baseball. Like, I like all those documentaries because that's what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And since I haven't been, I, I did become a pretty rabid Braves fan when I moved because I moved to Atlanta. In golly, right early '90s, so it was right when they were starting oh, to get. When yeah. I first moved that here, you could get tickets. Run. Oh, but before that, you could get tickets, you know, on the first row behind home plate because no one was going to the stadium, and then they slowly just went. Mm-hmm. And um, so yeah, I still and I just you know obviously I'm talking about the, the old Fulton County Stadium. Yeah, I've been there. I've been to Turner Field, and I just took my steps and we went out uh, about a month before the end of the season to the new. Uh, Stadium was real pretty. It's not Turner Field had a real field. I think it's called SunTrust Stadium. Yeah, SunTrust or Truist Park. Yeah, now it's all the banks own this stadium. Yeah, it's all their names. And I kept they tore down because I I was up in New York about maybe three four years ago. We were shooting a movie. It was um uh, for HBO called Paterno with Pacino, and we shot. We had to shoot uh, like we were at a game at a Penn State game, but they shot it out at City Park. Um, and up in the like the the luxury area, like yeah. we were in like a bar up there. But as a kid, but we got to come in like where the clubhouse is, and they had all the pictures of like Gil Hodges and and Ron, Ron Swoboda and all these people. So I was like, again, I was like a little kid getting to be like getting to go in to the stadium where the players go in. I was I felt eight years old again. So let me bring you. Let me talk to you about this. The Mets just two days ago signed Max Scherzer. They did. To a forty-plus million, I believe, uh, forty million per year. I want to say. I mean, it's (laughs) it has gotten crazy. These salaries in baseball. Yeah. And Max Scherzer is not in his prime anymore. Now the Mets are under new ownership with uh, Neil Cohen being the new owner. Yeah. Uh, You know, so he took it from the Wilpons. The uh, Wilpons. Yeah, they owned. had it for so long. Oh, yeah. It was in the family for a long time. They finally sold it. Neil, um, the Cohen guy, bought it. He says, uh-huh. I know I'm going to be facing a loss. But he's obviously not uh, shy to spend money, which yeah. the Wilpons were. Uh, so if I were to ask you right now, since you are a baseball fan, which team would you say you are is your rooting team for right now? I think I'm root. I'm still, I'll, I'll always have a soft spot for the New York teams just because they're kind of in my blood, I, but I don't know them as well. as like, I know the Braves pretty well. Congratulations. And, you guys are the world series. winners. <laughs> yes. And that was, that's still unbelievable. Cause I remember when they lost their best player in like July and I was like, well, that's it. I might as well even stop watching the games. Um, but what the cool thing about like, have you ever been to an old timers game? Yes. See, like, like when I went to the old timers games, it was like Yankee Stadium. I never went to. The, I never got to see the Mets live as a kid because the one day I was supposed to go, and we had tickets. You know, it was a big deal. I mean, my dad had the Mets tickets, and I remember I was like two months ahead of time, and I was just waiting every day. And the day we were supposed to go, it got rained out, and I remember sobbing as if someone had cut my leg off. But but I got to go to a couple of Yankees. Uh, old-timers game and we got to see like joe dimaggio and it was and, oh, and babe incredible. ruth's widow would always it just says i'm kind of old but they'd always introduce babe ruth's widow 
and she'd be there and whitey ford would be pitching and oh my god it's uh so i just yeah i i i'm very fond of the old days but yeah. um yeah i, I kind of root for the for the braves i think there's okay. nothing like when you when you first walk into a stadium where there was a like at shea i had a mets poncho instead of an umbrella so we'd go out and there'd be a rain delay and i'd be way you know up in the nosebleed seats I was fine. I'd just be sitting drinking my beer. Now, Shea Stadium got a bad name, you know. Oh, Shea. I liked Shea Stadium. I loved it. It was, and Mets fans could be, well, they changed a little bit because when I first started going to games in like the early 80s, before they had gotten good, Mets fans were kind of scary. They were kind of like Philadelphia Eagles fans in the NFL. They were like, they did not mess around. They Mm. would. Oh, they would harass the other players, and they got a little scary. <laughs> but yeah, Shea had this, and you know the Jets were always going overhead and stuff. LaGuardia and it had is a, right it there. Had a, yeah, it had a charm to it. And that the old World's Fair globe was, you know, across the street. It just had a charm to it. That and area, I mean, it's great. Like you said, uh, Flushing Meadow Park is right across the street. That's where the yeah. U.S. Open is played every fall on yeah. the end of summer. Uh, Steve, we're out of time. This has oh been such God. a fascinating conversation. I had so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on here and sharing all those great stories and talking. Absolutely. Any final thoughts uh, you want to share before we go? I just, good luck to you. I think it's great what you're doing. And I, I love, like I said, I watched a couple and I said, I like the way this guy, you know, it's the best hosts have a curiosity and uh, and they're just as interesting as any guess they might have and thank you. Uh, you, you you ask good questions thank you a, thank yeah. you that really means a lot <laughs> steve thank you so much it's been a complete honor to talk to you thank you to all our viewers who tuned in and are going to be watching this later on archived on behalf of steve coulter myself stay safe stay walking yes. good night happy everybody. holidays happy all holidays right. bye-bye all right <laughs>